0: Hello. My name is Ruslan Medjetov. I'm a professor at Yale University School of Medicine and an investigator of the Hort Hughes Medical Institute. And in this lecture, I will discuss our recent study on the effect of inflammation in acute illness and uh, the role of disease tolerance in surviving uh, acute illness. As I discussed in the introductory lecture, the costs of inflammation uh, can be broken down into two categories. The first is the intentional suppression of lower-priority functions that are incompatible with the goals of the response. And the second uh, type of costs are unintentional but unavoidable uh, loss of function, for example, due to collateral damage. And the sum of these two costs has to be lower than the benefit provided by the inflammation uh, in order to the system to evolve the way it is. And this relation between the cost and benefit is what's really essential for understanding many biological functions and their deviations into pathological states. So every biological trait can be characterized by some benefit it provides and some cost at which it operates. And this can be schematically shown as follows. So if we plot benefit versus cost... Uh, for a system... for a biological trait to evolve, uh, the benefit has to be higher than the cost. So, any trait that would be in the green triangle part of the plot, where benefit higher than the cost, would be evolutionary acceptable. And anything in the red triangle, where cost higher than the benefit, would be eliminated by natural selection. And as you can see, the higher the benefit of the trait, the higher is the acceptable cost. And this view is from the evolutionary perspective. So all evolution cares about is that the benefit is higher than the cost. And the same plot from the patient or uh, physician perspective would look like this. Here again, anything uh, that is in the upper left triangle, where benefit is higher than the cost, would be a fair gain from an evolutionary perspective. But as you move uh, to the right side, when the cost becomes higher and higher because benefit is high, uh, then this would be associated with conditions we would often refer to as pathological or disease conditions. So, if you're a patient and you're having uh, an acute infection, uh, there is an ongoing immune and inflammatory responses, but at the same time you feel very ill as a consequence of these responses, uh, this would be a situation in the upper... Uh, right corner, where benefit is still higher than the cost, uh, but the cost is so high that it makes you feel sick. And um, it is this uh, uh, position on the plot, on the upper right corner, where trades that provide very high benefit will have very high acceptable costs. And some diseases can be due to uh, these types of uh, trades with very high benefits coming with the high cost. And that's the situation we've been interested in investigating, what kind of mechanisms operate when the cost of the response is so high that it makes you feel ill. And you're, in fact, close to the... Uh, um, to the uh, condition where uh, it could be life-threatening. And, uh, One famous set of conditions like this are associated with acute illness. And uh, what's been known for... for a long time is that during acute illness, humans and other animals experience what's known as sickness behaviors. And these are stereotypical responses uh, that include loss of appetite, social withdrawal, fatigue, uh, altered sleep patterns, cessation of grooming, and suppression of libido. And why they all happen and why there's this particular combination of uh, behaviors is is not very clear, but it's clear that they occur in all animals studied. Uh, They've even been observed in insects. And it's been um, uh, concluded uh, uh, decades ago that these are not just debilitations of normal uh, behaviors, but rather these are motivated behaviors. In other words... They occur with a the purpose. There is some intentional uh, induction of these responses. But what the purpose of these responses is, is has been uh, less clear. And that's what we investigated in the study I will describe today. So, we were particularly interested uh, in understanding uh, the phenomenon of... Um, disease-induced anorexia. We're all familiar with this phenomenon. When you have acute infection, like flu infection or severe cold, uh, your appetite goes away, you don't want to eat, you want to sleep a lot, and uh, we asked why is that... that uh, we don't eat when we are very sick. And to model that, we uh, studied uh, an infection with a bacterial pathogen called Listeria monocytogenes*, which is a very common... Uh, bacterium that causes food poisoning. And what we did here, we infected mice with a sublethal dose of listeria and uh, monitored their food consumption. And as you can see, uh, the red line is uh, mice that are infected with listeria. And as you can see, there is a very profound suppression of food consumption. And uh, the mice go on... um, and this anorexic state until they start recovering from infection, at which point they will regain uh, food consumption, and we asked why is it that they don't eat? what would happen if they are forced to eat and to address that, we fed the mice with the same amount of the same type of food that they normally consume, uh, and uh, we only provided them uh, about twenty percent of normal daily caloric intake, so it's just a small fraction of what they would normally eat. And we used, in this case, uh, a dose of Listeria that kills 50% of mice, so it's called little Dose 50, or LD50, which is shown in the black line. Uh, These are mice that are control mice. And then the experimental mice were given food, and as you can see, all of them died within 10 days, indicating that eating during bacterial infection can be lethal. And that result actually is not new. It was first reported in 1979 uh, with a similar model, with Listeria infection, that forced feeding during infection uh, can be... Uh, can, le- can, increased, uh, can increase lethality. So, then we asked, what is it in the food that uh, causes this effect? And we tested separately proteins, uh, carbohydrates, and fats, and found that the effect of... Uh, this effect of feeding was due to... Uh, uh, carbohydrates, specifically due to glucose. Because if we would just give mice glucose at the time of the, of the infection, then 100% of them would uh, succumb to infection. And that was very interesting, because it indicated that just glucose, that simple metabolite and essential metabolite, is sufficient uh, to cause such a dramatic effect on survival. And then we asked what would happen if we do the opposite uh, manipulation. If we prevent glucose utilization. And to do so, we used uh, um, a metabolite derivative called 2-deoxyglucose, or 2DG, which is a glucose variant that can be taken into the cells but cannot be metabolized. So it prevents glucose utilization even if glucose is present in the system. And when we gave mice 2DG uh, twice a day by injecting it either intraperitoneally or giving them orally or Uh, giving them intravenously. It didn't matter which route we used. And as you can see in the blue line here, uh, 100% of mice now could survive this infection that otherwise would kill 50% of mice. So, that was very exciting because it indicated that blocking glucose utilization can protect mice from infection, and giving them glucose can promote mortality. Then we asked whether this is something unique to Listeria or can be generalized to other types of uh, bacterial infections. And to address this, we used uh, a common model of uh, uh, bacterial sepsis that is caused by... not by live bacteria, but by a specific bacterial component called lipopolysaccharide, or LPS, which is present in all gram-negative bacteria and which is well-known to induce uh, a very dramatic inflammatory response. Inflammation uh, caused by gram-negative infections, in large part due to LPS. So, if we just use LPS instead of live pathogens, then we simplify the system and eliminate all the variations due to uh, pathogenicity of different uh, bacteria. And as you can see here, we... when we give uh, LD50 dose of LPS, uh, which is the line in the middle, um, we have about 50% of mice would succumb to sepsis then if we give them either um, a control, PBS, phosphate-buffered saline, a physiological solution, or give them food, you can see that there's a dramatic difference in survival. So mice that receive food, most of them would die. And then we asked if this effect, again, is due to glucose. And we performed, again, a similar experiment, uh, giving either glucose or 2DG. And as you can see, now... 100% 100% of mice that receive glucose would die from LPS sepsis, and 100% would survive if they are given 2-deoxyglucose. So, this was very exciting because this is a very simple manipulation. We're just using either glucose or anti-glucose. And we have this profound uh, 100% effect on survival in a condition that is otherwise uh, intractable. It's... a uh, uh, Sepsis uh, is a very complex uh, uh, disease that has very high mortality rate, and there are still very few treatment options for sepsis. So, we were very excited to see that such a simple manipulation can have such a dramatic effect on survival. Interestingly, these effects of glucose and 2-deoxyglucose were not due to changes in the magnitude of the inflammatory response. So, if we measure the major inflammatory cytokines, including TNF, IL-6, or acute phase proteins, such as serum amyloid protein, you can see that, regardless of whether it's a control mouse or a mouse giving glucose or 2DG, the level of inflammatory response was the same. So, the fact that mice giving glucose die and mice giving 2DG survive is not due to changes in the inflammatory response. So then we asked, what is it due to... and, uh, of course, when mice don't eat, they undergo uh, a fasting metabolic state. And we then asked whether this fasting metabolism is the one that matters, rather than the inflammation itself. And just to remind you, what happens during fasting is that uh, glucose level goes down, and therefore insulin level goes down. and uh, most organs uh, switch from using glucose to switching... Uh, to using fatty acids produced... Uh, released from adipose tissue. And only brain continues to use glucose initially. So, during initial stages of fasting, free fatty acids, or FFA, would be released from adipose tissue by a process called lipolysis, or release of fatty acids. And then fatty acids will become main fuel for most organs and... while brain will continue to use glucose. And then, if fasting is prolonged, uh, then some fatty acids will go into liver and will be converted into a different metabolite called... called ketones, such as beta-hydroxybutyrate, or VHOB, here. And this fasting metabolic switch into ketogenesis, production of ketones, is controlled by uh, a nuclear receptor uh, called PPAR-alpha, shown here. So, what PPAR alpha does during this prolonged fasting, it detects fatty acids that are delivered from the uh, adipose tissue and induces enzymes that generate ketones from fatty acids. And the point of that is that ketones now can be used by the brain. And second thing that PPAR alpha does, it, it controls expression of a fasting hormone called FGF21. So, we thought that it's uh, uh, this. PPAR-alpha-regulated processes that are activated during fasting might be involved in controlling survival. Because when we eat uh, or consume food or glucose, that would induce insulin production, and insulin will suppress all this process. It will suppress lipolysis, and it will suppress ketogenesis. And we thought that maybe that's why glucose kills, and 2-deoxyglucose leads to... uh, promotes survival. So, to test that, uh, we first examined whether, indeed, glucose will prevent uh, these PPAR-alpha regulated uh, outcomes, such as uh, hydroxybutyrate production and FGF21 expression. And indeed, as you can see, on the left side, this is measurement of uh, non-esterified fatty acids or free fatty acids. So, they are released during fasting. You can see in the black line... Uh, the fatty acid level in the... uh, in the plasma go up. And later, beta-hydroxybutyrate starts going up, and uh, the fasting hormone, FGF21, is also strongly induced. But if we give mice glucose, then all these responses are shut down. And none of them happen. And then we asked whether they... this is what contributes to differential survival from feeding. So, to address that, we used mice that are deficient in PPAR-alpha, where neither ketogenesis nor FGF21 expression can be induced, and we used also the FGF21 knockout mice. And as you can see in the uh, left panel, both of these mice now succumb to sublethal doses of LPS that are survived 100% by control mice. So that suggests that both FGF21 and PPAR-alpha are necessary for survival. And in the absence of PPAR-alpha, on the right panel, you can see that uh, there is no production of um, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate. But the level of inflammation in all three conditions was the same. So, as you can see in the lower panel, uh, the level of TNF in uh, in the serum in all three uh, mouse strains was uh, uh, the same. So, what we found, also, is that glucose supplementation increased and 2-deoxyglucose decreased oxidative stress in the midbrain area uh, during LPS sepsis. And by performing PET scan uh, to follow where glucose goes during sepsis, we found that following LPS challenge, the... this area of midbrain was the... Uh, showed the greatest difference in glucose consumption. So, there was increased glucose uptake into the, this particular brain area that... where we also saw increased oxidative stress. And so, what we concluded from that is that fasting metabolism and ketogenic programs are required for survival of LPS sepsis. And what we noticed, also, is that the death from sepsis was preceded by seizures or convulsions. And it's also well known that ketogenic diet is used to treat epilepsy. And all these pieces of puzzle together led us to ask whether anti-epileptic drugs could be protective from sepsis. Which was a very far-fetched idea, but we tested it, and to our surprise and delight, we found that uh, indeed, anti-epileptic drug valporic acid could rescue mice from lethal uh, sepsis, and interestingly, the second anti-epileptic drug called Keppra did not have such an effect, and that is very informative for us because these two drugs have very different mechanisms of action. So, we then tested whether valporic acid can protect uh, upstream or downstream of the effect of glucose. And what we found was that uh, valporic acid protected uh, against LPS sepsis, even in p alpha knockout mice, which, as you remember, cannot produce ketone bodies. So, as if valporic acid substitutes to the protective effect of ketones. But 2-deoxyglucose cannot protect p alpha knockout mice from LPS sepsis because it acts upstream of ppar alpha so, that uh, indicated that valporic acid has its effect very downstream in the fasting pathway at the same level, perhaps, as ketone bodies. And uh, the conclusion to this part is that uh, during um, sepsis, endotoxin sepsis, or LPS sepsis, uh, LPS induces inflammatory cytokines. And which of these is most important here is, is not clear. And probably several of them can uh, lead to a similar effect of increasing uh, generation of reactive oxygen species in the midbrain area. And uh, glucose promotes this effect, and 2-DG inhibits it. And ketones also inhibit that effect. And uh, consumption of food or glucose prevents ketogenesis, and therefore interferes uh, with uh, uh, the protective effect from... uh, protection from this uh, damage by ROS. And during fasting, people are alpha-dependent mechanisms generates ketones, uh, which lead to um, reduced ROS production and uh, adaptation to this stress of inflammation and survival, ultimately. And we think one of the effects, uh, common targets here, could be histone deacetylase... deacetylases, uh, because both ketones and acids are known to inhibit uh, histone deacetylases. And this is something we are currently testing. So, that's the part uh, of the study that had to do with uh, bacterial infection and bacterial sepsis, where we found that eating during bacterial infection or sepsis interferes with this normal protective effect of fasting metabolism, and therefore the anorexia that we feel when we uh, have uh, infections has to do with promoting this type of protective mechanisms uh, uh, associated with... Uh, fasting metabolism. And then we... um, uh, what we found here, therefore, is that this increased glucose level, uh, if it goes above some upper threshold level, can be deadly in the context of uh, bacterial sepsis. And another recent study uh, examined uh, the role of glucose in a very different model, where they looked at the lower threshold level, where they used mice which are unable to produce uh, glucose from the liver. Uh, And this was... this... and that also uh, leads to mortality. This was a study by uh, Miguel Suárez from Institute Gulbenkian in Lisbon, where they found that there is also a lower uh, boundary for the uh, glucose level. So both upper boundary and lower boundary, if they're exceeded in the glucose level, can lead to mortality. So, it's important to keep that in mind, that it's not uh, in excess or uh, depletion. Uh, It's a maintenance of the the right amount of glucose uh, that is required for survival. And this is not surprising, of course, because glucose is still essential for uh, many cells, especially neuronal cells, for survival. And uh, while we found this a very dramatic effect of uh, glucose and 2-deoxyglucose on bacterial infection and sepsis, we then asked whether this is a more general phenomenon and whether it applies to all infections. And to address that, we used uh, a mouse model of uh, influenza infection, where mice are infected with a flu virus. And in this case, we are giving sublethal dose of flu. And then we follow, again, the food consumption. And just like with bacterial infection, you can see that mice, uh, when they at the peak of infection, they stop eating. And then as they start recovering from infection, they, can, they uh, resume uh, food consumption. And we asked, again, what would happen if we feed them at the time when they are anorexic. And what we found was very surprising, uh, and opposite to what we expected, and opposite to what we found with bacterial infection. As you can see here, if we feed the mice, they actually survive better, compared to mice that receive control uh, PBS solution. And if we just give them glucose, they also do better. And glucose partially protects from mortality. And we think the, the, the rest of the protection uh, is provided by sodium. And when we asked the uh, question, uh, converse question, whether t- what 2DG will do, and we found that 2DG actually was lethal to, uh, in the context of viral infection, as shown here in the blue line. When mice are given 2DG, in the context of uh, viral infection, they all died 100%. Interestingly, this difference in survival was not due to uh, tissue damage that normally caused by flu virus. So this is a a lung pathology. On the left side is a control. On the right side is 2-DG-treated mice, and they're uh, basically the same. There is no difference in the degree of tissue damage caused by the virus. And also, there is uh, uh, the same level of hemorrhage, edema, and uh, inflammatory infiltrate. So that did not explain 100% differences in survival. And also, there was no difference in uh, the magnitude of the inflammatory response, as shown on the left side, by measuring uh, interferon alpha in the plasma. And interestingly and importantly, there is no difference also in viral burden. If we measure uh, the amount of viruses during an the infection, they are similar between control and 2DG-treated mice. And again, 2DG-treated mice are the ones that uh, succumb 100% to this infection. So what we then... Um, Noticed uh, by performing other uh, measurements on these mice is that uh, the death from viral inflammation caused by uh, either flu virus or some mimics of viral infection was associated with decline in vital functions, such as heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, and so on. And that suggested that there perhaps is a failure of the autonomic control centers that reside in the brainstem. And moreover, when we performed PET scan on this mice, again, we found that glucose was preferentially taken into the brain stem area during viral inflammation. And remember, during bacterial inflammation, it was preferentially taken into the midbrain area. So, that was puzzling, but suggested a possible uh, scenario where viral infection somehow interfaces with glucose metabolism, and the only type of connection that... Uh, we could find uh, in the prior literature that would suggest the mechanism had to do with uh, endoplasmic reticulum stress, or ER stress. So, ER stress is normally induced by um, unfolded protein response uh, in the endoplasmic reticulum, and it leads to um, adaptation to the uh, unfolded protein accumulation through induction of chaperones and various proteases and so on, and that leads to resolution of the ER stress. However, if ER stress is excessive, uh, then uh, the second branch of the pathway is induced uh, by leading to transcriptional induction of a... um, a transcription factor called CHOP, uh, uh, that leads to uh, cell death through apoptosis. And because glucose availability can also impact on protein glycosylation in the ER, it can also lead to uh, ER stress. So, when uh, cells are deprived of glucose... Uh, that can lead to uh, ER stress. And viral infection can also lead to ER stress. So, we thought perhaps these two conditions may somehow um, conspire to trigger excessive ER stress, leading to induction of this transcription factor CHOP, leading to uh, neuronal damage in the brainstem. And we tested whether CHOP is indeed induced under those conditions in... anywhere in the brain, and found that indeed... Uh, when mice have viral inflammation, in this case induced by um, a viral mimic called poly I:C, uh, either alone or together with 2DG, and then we monitored uh, Chop expression by Western blot, and we found that it was only induced in brain uh, area, and only when mice received both poly I:C and 2DG. And then we tested whether Chop is involved in mortality uh, caused by infection, and 2DG. And to test that, we used either wild type uh, or CHOP-deficient mice. And the gene name for CHOP is DDIT3, so there's a DDIT3 knockout mice in uh, opals, open symbols. And as you can see, wild type mice that receive I:C and 2DG die 100%. That's a blue, triangles. And uh, uh, CHOP-deficient mice receiving the same combination of polyacene and 2DG survive 100% indicating that, indeed, this particular transcription factor is the critical mediator of mortality from uh, viral infection combined with uh, 2DG. And again, as shown on the right slide, there was no difference in the inflammatory response as measured here by interferon-alpha in the serum. So, the summary for this part is that during viral infection, or more generally during viral inflammation, because we could find the same exact phenomenon with just using poly-IC, Uh, There is a production of type one interferons, interferon, alpha, and beta, and that leads to uh, activation of the unfolded protein response, or UPR, uh, combined with uh, uh, glucose consumption in the brainstem area. Why it's specifically brainstem that's affected in this manner, we don't know. It's a very interesting question, uh, which we hope to understand someday. But what happens in the context of this response uh, with metabolites is that glucose ameliorates this response. It prevents induction of CHOP and neuronal dysfunction and... uh, uh, and death. Whereas 2-DG uh, exacerbates it and leads to CHOP induction and uh, subsequent loss of function of the brainstem and uh, autonomic control centers, uh, resulting in death. So, these are two very different effects of uh, metabolism on bacterial and viral inflammation. And uh, all of it could be tied down to uh, utilization of glucose, or block of glucose utilization. And it's completely independent of uh, pathogenicity. It's independent on pathogen burden. And it's independent on the magnitude of inflammation. So, this is what we refer to as... uh, being able to tolerate a given level of inflammation, rather than controlling the level of inflammation. So, this study was done by three very talented scientists in... in my group, uh, shown from right to left, Andrew Wong, Sarah Huin and Harding Luan uh, and uh, uh, two talented technicians, Shueling and Shuang, who helped with the uh, study, and... as well as Carmen Booth and Jean-Dominique uh, there' a who uh, are helped with pathology and PET path scan, uh, and the, our funding is shown uh, at the bottom of this slide. And thank you for your attention.